Good morning. It's good to see all of you who have come out to join us for worship here at Ivy Creek today. We're glad for all of you who have joined us in the house this morning and all of you who are joining us from your house online. We're grateful for you too. Thank you for, uh, for tuning in today and my prayer is, is that we will be blessed as we open God's word together and as we study it together and as we continue worshiping with him together. Of course, you know today is Palm Sunday. It is the day that the church sets aside in order for us to remember uh, really Jesus' triumphal entry. Uh, that last time on that Sunday as he rode the back of, of that donkey, as he went into uh, the city of Jerusalem for that last time. And uh, today is the day in which the church always seems to come together to celebrate that. Now, if you've been with us during our, our, our series that we've been looking at the, the final chapters of the Gospel of John, you'll know that Jesus came into his own on that Palm Sunday, but his own received him not. In fact, we, we read just this last week that he, he came there and, and that the, the, the Jewish religious leaders rejected Jesus. They, they tried him, they condemned him, and they handed him over to, to Pilate, who was the Roman-appointed governor of, of Judea, and of, he reigned there, he, he was reigning there during the, the time of the Passover in Jerusalem. And, and Pilate interrogated Jesus, but found no reason to convict him sought to release him, but it was the Jewish religious leaders who cried out all the more, no, we want him crucified, crucified. In fact, give us Barabbas, give us a robber and an insurrectionist and an evildoer, give us him, but keep Jesus. In fact, we want to see him crucified. And so that is as we left at the end of, of verse 16 of John chapter 19 last week. That's what we see is that Pilate uh, sentences Jesus to death via the cross. And so what I want us to do today in keeping with where we've been studying is to fast forward past the events of Palm Sunday to get us to the events that we're going to read about today that occur on Good Friday. Now, whenever we come to this week, to this time of year, particularly as we contemplate Good Friday, it is always the question that comes to my mind, what makes Good Friday good? There's nothing really that helps us to understand the goodness of that. What, what good thing occurred on Good Friday? There, there, there seems to be very little for us to celebrate. There seems to be very little to, to con commend itself to us as good when we see the, the, the beaten to a pulp body of our Lord who was then crucified. Just days earlier, He was hailed as the King of the Jews who comes in the name of the Lord, but then on Good Friday, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied, Jesus became a man who was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, a man from whom people hid their faces, a man who was held in lowest esteem. The question is, how can such a thing be considered good? I mean, by what measure can we evaluate such, such a turn of events under which we see an innocent man condemned to die, treated in such an inhumane way? How can we deem the day on which he is brutally crucified good? I think for us, any of us, to be able to make a, a proper evaluation of that, we have to examine all the things that occurred on that day. And then we have to consider the implication that, that those things had not only on the day and time in which Jesus was crucified, but upon us even today. 
We have to consider what occurred and how does that affect us even now. And that's what I want us to do this morning. So begin reading with me there in verse 17 of John chapter 19, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of God. And he, that is Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to a place of the skull, that is, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him. And two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam. It was woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, and bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scriptures should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. And now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. 
Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this opportunity we have to be able to come to your house, to worship you, to to sing songs of praise to you, to be able to offer prayers to you and know that they are heard, but then also to open the scripture which you have authored, the truth that you have given to us, and we can read it. I pray that you will allow every word that comes from my mouth, Lord, to honor you and to direct us as a body to you. I pray that you will use your holy scriptures to bring conviction of sin, righteousness and judgment to come, and that you would draw us closer to you. My prayer is that you would be lifted up and honored in all that we do. And I pray this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. Now, if you got your bulletin this morning and you looked and you saw eight points, wow. Fear not, we're going to go through them quickly, I promise. We're going to get there. I've given you just eight words that I hope will just sort of serve as, as I like to call them, hooks for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through this text. And they're just one-word hooks. They're just going to help us move through it. The first one that I want you to see is the word torture. Torture. As we read this account, you may be surprised as you read through this of how little information John gives us about the crucifixion. If you go back and you read the other gospel writers, you'll find a similar thing. They don't provide a lot of information about the crucifixion. They didn't have to. It wasn't necessary that they provide a lot of gory details about the crucifixion because what happened at a crucifixion was well known among the first century people, those who had come under the Roman rule. They knew what a crucifixion was like. They knew how bad it was. They knew how horrific it was. One one has written this, even the Romans themselves regarded crucifixion with a shudder of horror. It was the most cruel, horrifying death imaginable because After having been nailed to a cross, a man could just linger on and suffer for days before dying. Execution by crucifixion was designed to ensure maximum human suffering. John doesn't dwell on all of those gory details, neither will I. I simply just want to point out to you that they take Jesus, they lead him, to a place called the place of the skull, likely because of the outcropping of rocks, looked like a a skull up on a hill. In the Hebrew, the meaning of the word is Golgotha. And it was there that the soldiers would have pushed Jesus down on his back, onto the crossbeam that he had carried to this place. And one would have laid on his chest while the two others would have stretched his arms out and nailed five-inch-long spikes through his hand, securing him to that crossbeam. Then those soldiers would have picked him up and forced him and put him on the vertical beam, and they would have secured the vertical beam there and then would have taken his feet and nailed another spike through his feet in order to secure him to the cross. There Jesus would have been left to die either from asphyxiation when he could no longer push himself up to get air to fill his lungs, or he would die there by sheer shock from the pain that he was experiencing, or he would die there just from dehydration. The point is simple. Death by way of crucifixion was not meant to be fast, nor was it meant to be pain-free. It was meant to be cruel. It was intended to be the worst possible way to die. It was torture. 
That leads us to the next hook that we come to in our passage. It's the word title. Title. It was common for those who were crucified to to have some sort of a placard or a sign that would announce to the onlooking world why they were being crucified. It was Rome's way of deterring sin and deterring illegalities and deterring those who would do bad things. They would attach a sign to the cross that would announce to everyone, this man is dying for this reason. But you'll notice that Pilate didn't do that with Jesus. With Jesus, he just gave him a placard that had a title on it. You see, Pilate had already declared Jesus was not guilty of the crimes for which he was being accused by his own people. And so Pilate, who did not like the Jews anyways, sought to dig a little deeper into them. And so he created a title for Jesus that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. There's no accusation there. It's just simply a title that Pilate gave to Jesus. Now, as you can imagine, that did not sit well with the Jews, who then looked at Pilate and says, don't write that. Write that he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. What's interesting, though, to me is that what John tells us, this little piece of information, he says that the placard was evidently large enough that that title could be written in three languages. In Hebrew, which was the native language of the Jews, but also in Greek, which was the language that was spoken throughout the Mediterranean Hellenized world. But then it was also written in Latin, which would have been the language that was spoken by those Roman soldiers. Now, I think that that's interesting to note, and it's a significant detail because it, John records it so that we wouldn't miss the irony of that. You see, the title that Pilate had written and that was eventually placed on the cross above Jesus was far truer than he ever knew. D.A. Carson writes this, he says, The trilingual title serves as a symbol for the proclamation of the kingship of Jesus to the whole world. In other words, we might even say it this way, what Pilate intended for evil by poking at the Jews, God used as a way of proclaiming the glory of His Son to all who would have stared upon in their own language they could have read it for themselves. The irony of what we witness in this passage is that Jesus turns an obscene instrument of torture, the cross, into his throne of glory, and he simultaneously takes Pilate's obscene desire to add insult to injury through what he had written on that placard, and he uses it as a means of declaring his true identity to all who would look. Torture, title, The third hook that we come to in this passage is tunic. Tunic. It was the Roman practice to crucify its prisoners naked in order to add to their humiliation. Jesus very likely experienced the same as well. John tells us that the soldiers who crucified Jesus each took a part of his garments. There were four of those soldiers. One likely would have taken his sandals. Another would have taken his belt. Another would have taken the outside garment that he would have worn. Another would have taken his head band and the headdress that he would have had. 
But then there was a fifth article of clothing that when they came there, there was, there was no way they couldn't figure out what to do. It was, it was this tunic. It was the undergarment that Jesus would have worn. And, and something specific about that garment is important to note. It, it didn't have any seams in it. You notice what it says? It was woven in one piece from the top all the way down. And when the soldiers got to that, they looked at it and they said, this is too rare. This is, this is too valuable for us to rip it apart. It's too nice. It was something that was, was not seen every day. And so they decided rather than tearing it apart, let's gamble for it. Let's, let's cast lots. Let's throw dice. Let's see which one of us will be the winner who gets to claim this prized possession. Now John takes time to point out this detail for us so that we recognize that in gambling for the Lord's tunic, these soldiers were actually fulfilling Scripture. Psalm 22 is a messianic prophecy written by King David. And we studied that psalm together, if you remember, last year. And it is a psalm that is written with great accuracy and great specificity that tells us a lot of what occurred on the cross. But listen, it was written 1,000 years before the event actually occurred. It's one of the most amazing psalms that you'll come to. And listen, in Psalm 22, verse 18, David writes these words. He says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, in light of that prophecy, I want you to consider the fact that these Roman soldiers, well, listen, they didn't get together and say, Hey, you know what we need to do? There's this thousand-year-old Jewish prophecy that we need to make sure gets fulfilled today. So, and tell you what, let's, let's make sure that we do that. Let's gamble for this piece of clothing that this, this man is wearing because we want to make sure that we fulfill Old Testament Scripture. That's not what they were doing. Unknowingly and involuntarily of their own accord, they fulfilled what God had said would occur a thousand years before. Don't miss that. Because that alerts us to something we've been seeing happen regularly throughout this, these last chapters. Everything that occurred to Jesus, everything that happened to Him, occurred because it was God's divine will that it would happen. Nothing happened to Him that was, was apart from God's sovereignty taking its place in His life. Even this act, where these four soldiers who had no idea that this Scripture would have ever been written, unwittingly fulfill it right there at the foot of the cross. Don't miss that. But let's continue on because in this passage we notice that the gambling of these soldiers is replaced, is counterbalanced with these women that John alerts us to. John says that there were four women near the cross. There was Jesus' mother and his mother's sister and Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene plays an important part in what we see occur after the resurrection of Christ. But at this point, Jesus' mother takes center stage. And because John was there, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we see something important that occurs. What we see is that all of these folks are gathered around the cross and they're seeing what's occurring with Jesus. And they're watching the torture that's happening with Him. And they're seeing Him suffer. And they're absolutely crushed they have to be by what they see taking place. I was reminded as I was studying this week of, of the prophecy of Simeon. Simeon was the old man who was there at the temple. If you remember when Jesus was eight days old and Mary brought him to Jesus and along with Joseph to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. 
And when they got there, this old man, Simeon, who had off every day had gone to the temple waiting to see the one who would come. He's there, and they bring the baby, and Simeon sees it, and he recognizes that this is the Messiah. And when he's doing that, he looks, and he begins to make this prophecy according to Luke chapter 2. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for a fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then Simeon looked Mary in her eyes and said this, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now, I submit to you, I, I don't think that Mary fully understood Simeon's prophecy at that point. But some three decades later, as she stood there looking there at her son, hanging on that cross, suffering through what he was suffering through, I think she knew full well what it was like to have her heart pierced. What it was like to see the soul-crushing agony of her own son hanging on a cross. That picture is what leads me to the next hook that is revealed to us in this text. It's the word tenderness. Tenderness. John tells us in verses 26 and 27, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and his disciple, whom he loved standing by, he said to her, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. At this point, Jesus is in limitless pain. You go and read some of the commentaries for some doctors that have attempted to try to explain all that Jesus would have been going through and enduring while he hung there on the cross. It's utterly amazing to take some of that information into our gray matter and think about it and then come to this and realize that even during that kind of torturous, agonizing pain, Jesus nevertheless expressed the depth of his love for his own. J.C. Ryle offers this comment. He says, We are told that even in the dreadful agonies of body and mind which our Lord endured, he did not forget her of whom he was born. He mercifully remembered her desolate condition and the crushing effect of the sorrowful sight before her, and he therefore commended her to the protection of his best love and best loving disciples. I want you to know that there is tremendous comfort in that. Raoul goes on to say this. He says, we have, a Jesus, we have in Jesus a Savior of matchless concern for the condition of His believing people. The heart that even on the cross felt for Mary is a heart that never changes. Jesus never forgets any who love Him. And even in their worst estate, He remembers their need. May I just say to you this morning, I do not know what you are going through. I do not know what soul-crushing weight you are bearing on yourself at this point. I do not know the depths of the sorrow to which you have been drawn to, but I do know this, that the crucified Savior looks at you with eyes of tenderness and love, and He says to you, I care for you. There is a tenderness to our Lord of which we cannot begin to even understand. That even on the cross, He looked at His own mother and He said, Behold your son. Behold your mother. There is a tenderness there that we ought not miss. Leads me to the next hook. 
The next hook is the word thirst. John tells us in verse 28 that after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It's important for us to recognize here, first of all, that John gives us insight into Jesus' perspective on His own death. Even while He was still hanging on the cross, Jesus knew that He had accomplished the work that the Father had given Him to accomplish. His substitutionary bearing of God's wrath against sin was all but complete. And the next thing that we see is that knowing that His work was complete, He declares that He is thirsty, which is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Scholars debate which actual prophecy is the one that's fulfilled here. We go back to Psalm 22 again and to verse 15 where we read, My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaw. That signifies thirst. But then Psalm 69 verse 21 also says this, They gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. I think it's certainly a fulfillment of both. It doesn't have to be either one. But I would offer this to you for your thought as well. You know, as I contemplated Jesus declaring He was thirsty, I couldn't help but go back to the night before. Right after, right after Peter had drawn his sword and lopped off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, Jesus told Peter, put that sword back away. Shall I not drink of the cup which is given to me by my Father? You see, Jesus completely recognized that He was going to go through the suffering and the agony and that that was what was contained in the cup. And so when He says, I thirst here, is it not possible that that depicts the depths of the suffering that Jesus was going through and would continue? Here is the one who claimed to be the fountain of living water that would never run dry, yet here we see that He thirsts because He suffers the full brunt of God's wrath against sin. That brings me to the sixth hook in this text. It's the Greek word, tetelestai. It's one word in Greek, it's three words in English. In English, we translate tetelestai. It is finished. Tetelestai. It is finished. I want you to notice, Jesus did not say, I am finished. This was not the cry of a defeated man. No, he says, it is finished. Tetelestai, this is the cry of a victor. This is the cry of someone who has won. This is the cry of someone who says, it's all done. This is a very vivid and a very expressive word. Alan Carr makes the point that it was a word that a servant would use when a task was finished. Tetelestai. It was a word that was used when a priest would take a sacrificial animal and he had examined it and determined that it was worthy. Tetelestai. It was the word of a farmer who would use when an animal was born and that, that animal was a perfect specimen. Tetelestai. It was the word of an artist. When an artist would paint a picture and the last brush stroke was done and there was nothing else that needed to be done, that, that article of, of art was completed, he would say, Tetelestai. It is finished. It was the word it was the word of, of someone who, who owned a, a, a shop. He was a merchant. And, and as you can imagine, they, when, when this 
people would come in to buy things, they would engage in the haggling that is constantly occurring. And, and they would haggle back and forth until they found an appropriate price that was suitable for the merchant and also suitable for the one who was buying the product. And then they would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. Listen, when Jesus uses this word, He's telling us that the price had been paid. His mission had been fulfilled. Salvation had been accomplished. God was satisfied and the debt had been paid in full. Everything had been completed to perfection. And the perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice needed nothing to make it any better. And He had satisfied the demands of His heavenly Father who had sent Him. Tetelestai. As I said, this is not the cry of a defeated man. Rather, this is the cry of a victorious man. He says, I've done it all and I've drunk the, the cup till its dregs are gone. The sin debt of my people has been paid in full. And then you'll notice that with those words, Jesus bows his head and he dies. As I was putting together my thoughts for today's sermon, I couldn't help but go back and, and think of, the song written by Philip P. Bliss in 1875 entitled Hallelujah, What a Savior. Now, hallelujah is, is the word that we say when we're saying praise to God. Praise to God for such a Savior. Philip Bliss wrote these words. He says, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned, he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And then the last, the last verse is this. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring, then a new song we will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. What a Savior indeed that He would leave His throne in heaven and come to earth to take on human flesh and bear the full weight of my sin so that I might not only be freed from the death that I deserve, but I would be clothed in His righteousness and gifted with eternal life. Philip Bliss got it exactly right. Hallelujah. What a Savior. i got two more hooks. I've got to get to them. The next one is this. It's testimony. Testimony. Jesus died on that cross. He did not languish there like the other two men did. And the Jews wanted to have those men taken down from the cross because the next day was the Sabbath and it was a, this high holy day. And you'll notice they didn't want their land to be defiled. You see the hypocrisy that continues to be displayed by them. They really wanted those guys brought down so their land wouldn't be defiled. Never mind that the Son of God is there. Nevertheless, to hasten the death, the Roman soldiers go and they break the legs of the other two men that are hanging on the cross beside Jesus. 
That way they could no longer push themselves up anymore to get any more air in their lungs and they would die through suffocation. But when they got to Jesus, they recognized just as verse 30 already makes clear, he was already dead. So they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers, to make sure that Jesus was completely dead, took a spear and ran it up through his abdomen, at which point it went and got all the internal organs and outflowed water and blood. And the Bible tells us that this was done so that we might know for sure that the Scriptures were being fulfilled because according to Old Testament Scripture in Psalm 34, verse 20, that John tells us that's exactly what they would do. You see again that God is in charge of everything occurring there on Golgotha. But what I want you to focus on is what John writes in verse 35. John says this, And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. You see, John is telling us that he is an eyewitness to everything that occurred there on that Good Friday. He may not have recorded everything that we read in the other accounts of the gospel writers, but he had recorded everything that was necessary for us to recognize that his, his testimony was absolutely true. And the reason that he has given us this testimony is so that we might believe it. This is the same thing he says in the next chapter in John 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. John's testimony is given so that you may believe in who Jesus is. The question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? He has given it to you in very clear terms that Jesus Christ came to be the sacrifice. He made atonement for our sins. And He offers you eternal life through His death on the cross. Do you believe that? Have you received this gift that He offers you? Are you one who will boldly declare that your faith and your trust and your hope is found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone? Brothers and sisters, those of us who declare that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we must not live in the shadows and we must not conceal our testimony. John wrote what he did so that we might be bold witnesses to the world of who Jesus is and why he came. And that leads me to the last hook that I want you to see on your outline this morning. It's the word timidity. Notice the two men that we read about there at the end who came and took Jesus' body away to bury it. The first is Joseph of Arimathea. John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he had been a secret one because he feared the Jews. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, and though he did not give his own personal approval to what happened to Jesus, neither did he boldly defend the Lord. The second man that we read about there in this account is the man Nicodemus, who you will remember, according to John chapter 3, came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus came under the cover of darkness to inquire about becoming one of Jesus' disciples because he did not want to be recognized. But here's what I want you to note. Both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were men who had great affection and great love for Jesus. But prior to his death, they lived in the shadows. And they lived in secrecy so as not to incur the wrath of their own people. But you'll notice what happens after Jesus died. 
After Jesus died, these men were emboldened. They came, they begged, Joseph of Arimathea begged the body of Jesus. That was a bold move on his part. He was identifying himself with Christ. And he took the body of Jesus and they laid him in a tomb, listen, that had never had anyone else laying in it before. Do you realize what level of, of honor and respect that was giving to Jesus? Nicodemus comes bearing 100 pounds. 100 pounds of spices to be put on Jesus' body. That in itself tells you the level of respect and love that Nicodemus had for the Lord. He may have been in the dark in the past, but he comes to the light here at this last part. Having witnessed what they what Christ endured and having seen the lengths to which the Lord Jesus went, these two men abandoned their timidity and they boldly allowed their witness to shine forth. And I believe that there is a lesson to be learned there from their actions. And I believe there is a definitive lesson to be learned from this entire passage. You know, sometimes I'll be honest with you when I try to come up with a sermon in a sentence, not a paragraph, a sermon. And I will go ahead and admit, sometimes my sermons in the sentences are nothing more than paragraphs with commas in it. I know. Sometimes having to try to figure out how do you, how do you summarize this? How do you summarize it in such a way that you really want people to feel the understanding of what this text is moving it feels, it feels hard. It's a, it, sometimes it feels like a fool's errand, just to be honest with you. There's so much that's here, but nevertheless, think with me, and, and hopefully this will make sense to you. This is, this is how I've summarized today's sermon. You see, because God planned it all out, and He provided fully for our salvation through Christ's death on the cross, then then. Do you see how you and I are called to believe in Jesus and to live a life that is boldly proclaiming ourselves as His disciple? Because God planned and provided fully for our salvation through Christ's death on the cross, we are called to believe in Jesus and live boldly as His disciples. And listen, that's why Good Friday is so good. That brings us back to what we were talking about. Why is Good Friday good? How could it possibly be good? It is good because on that cross, Jesus Christ provided what I could never provide for myself. He gave what I could never give. And He paid it all. He didn't leave one thing left for me to pay for myself. He paid it all Himself. That makes it good. He took my place. The substitutionary death of Christ means that you and I have life. We have life given to us through Christ, through His name. And this passage calls us to believe in Him. Do you believe in Him? Have you trusted in Him to be your Lord and Savior? Have you repented of your sins and declared Him to be your Lord and your Master and that you're going to follow Him with all of your life? If you have never done that, I plead with you today. Believe on Christ. Flee to Him. Run to Him. Trust in Him. He is your only hope. And then I would say to you, if that is your testimony, are you living boldly in this dark world? If the world ever needed a bright witness for the gospel and for Christ, it needs it right now. 
And He has left us who are His church, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to go out into the dark world and to share that good news and to be a testimony, just as John was a testimony, to declare the truth to those who will listen. Listen, there is hope in only one name, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. Are you living that way? Has that conviction come upon you to you are willing to live your life boldly for Christ? And that brings us to this moment. When you came in, I hope that you received one of these cups. If you did not, and you would like one, if you're a a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will boldly stand up and say, He is my Lord and my Savior, I want to invite you to participate with us this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. If If you need one of these, if you just raise your hand, I've got some ushers that are looking for you right now, and they'll be glad to bring you one. Okay. Let me say this to you before you... I want you to be careful. There's two things to pull back. You want to get the cellophane first. If you'll just pull the clear cellophane back and the purple part, it'll reveal the wafer and you can take that wafer out and hold it. If you went ahead and pulled the other part, then just be careful. When you got that, if you... If you're going to read it, just sort of let me see, and that way I'll know we're kind of all together. Okay, good. Those of you at home, you're probably not having this, this issue, so you've got what you've got. This is a wafer, a circular, not very good tasting wafer. But it's meant to remind us. It's meant to remind us of the body, the human flesh of Christ. It's meant there to remind us of what Christ went through. It's meant to remind us of what we've looked at this morning, of Him being stretched out on a cross, beaten, of, of the abuse and the torture. It's meant to remind us of that. Don't, don't dismiss it. Don't take it for granted. Jesus Christ offered His body for us the body of Christ given for you to take and eat. I'll admit that was the hardest thing that I've done all day right there. Got it. Just kind of give me a little idea. Let me see. This is juice. It's not the blood of Christ, but it is there to remind us of the blood of Christ. It is there to draw our attention back to the blood of Christ. It is there to help us as we look at it because of the color and because of the way that it looks in our hands and because when we hold it like we do and our heart beats, we see the the ripples taking place inside that cup. It reminds us that it's the lifeblood of Christ that we're to be reminded about, that He gave His blood. The Bible tells us clearly that without the, the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 
Do you realize that everything we've talked about occurring occurred there at Passover? And Passover was the reminder that the lambs were taken and they were, they were sacrificed there in the temple. Jesus Christ became the perfect sacrifice. Tetelestai. It is finished with Him. He gave it all. His blood was shed and there is no need to shed any more blood. He has completed it. He has fully satisfied God's demand. And you hold in your hand just a little thimble full of juice that is there to remind you of the blood that Jesus shed for your sins. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take it. And everything that we've done this morning, we've done because we recognize that God planned it and He provided fully for our salvation through Christ's death on the cross. And we are called to believe in Jesus and we are called to live boldly as His disciples. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God and is for the people of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the time that we're able to spend studying it. I pray that you take these scattered thoughts that I've been able to utter today and that you would bring them back together for your good and for the, for the glory, your glory. And I pray that, that we would be a people this week as we consider all that occurred, as we think through the various things that occurred during the week of Passion that we would be reminded of the great sacrifice that you paid for us. Lord, I don't know everyone here. I don't know where they are in their own lives personally. My prayer is that the conviction of the Holy Spirit may rest upon those that do not know you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe they've known you by words, but they've never truly entered into a faith relationship with you. My prayer today is that you're convicting power of your Holy Spirit would rest upon them. There may be those in this room that have drifted far from you through bad choices in their lives, bad decisions, things that they've allowed to take place in first place in their lives rather than you. And as a result, they've drifted far from you. My prayer today is that your Holy Spirit would call to them and draw them back to you. And Lord, when they... When they hear that call, I pray that they would answer it. For the rest of us, Lord, who are still struggling with what it means to live and be the, the Christians you've called us to be in this world, I pray that you would fill us with a holy boldness to live a life that brings glory to you. Father, as we do that, I pray that your light would shine forth in our lives, that others might see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.